I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, featuring a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a modern design clarion, a design creative with exceptional vision, and a true perspective on who he is as a creative and what he wants his eponymous firm to be. This is Benjamin Johnston, recorded live at the West Edge Design Fair's first Texas edition in September 2022. <laughs> Architect and designer Benjamin Johnston is the face of his namesake firm, but he's not a one-man show. He's partner and creative director and seems extremely comfortable with the roles he's chosen for himself. That of creative to work the business, but not necessarily CEO, president, or other lofty titles, because he's made the decision not to let the business work him. The true gift I receive from moderating these chats is a unique perspective that sometimes really surprises me. This one was one of those conversations, and I'm really pleased to present it to you for your enjoyment and edification. Before we get to Benjamin, I received a special delivery recently, and that warrants another book look. I don't review every book I receive, but the special ones do get special treatment and a lot of attention, and this is one such occurrence. During the early days of the pandemic, I started a new series called Designing for Disaster. During this series, I met with a number of designers talking about how they were how they were handling this new reality. One of those was Thomas Kligerman. He shared his story during the lockdown, and it was a very cool episode of the show. Check the show notes. If I remember, that is, there will be a link to that episode. So when Thomas wrote a book, I was certainly going to tell you about it. The book, Shingle and Stone, Thomas Kligerman Houses, is extraordinary for a number of reasons. This is a reflection on his years of work. It's also a lovingly tender notice to the architecture and design community that the band is breaking up in pursuit of solo careers. Thomas lays out his point of view and the manner in which he, Joel, and John have their own interests, both personally and professionally, to pursue. For Kligerman, it's the announcement of his first solo enterprise, Kligerman Architecture and Design. This 275-plus page announcement comes complete with a well-defined narrative. Every louver, shingle, elevation is uniquely Kligerman. As he even points out, it's not that he did everything by himself. It is a team joined together by a vision. That vision is uniquely Kligerman's. Thomas is not only an architect, but an artist who uses what architects use, elevation, space, material, etc. But his vision for taking shingle and bending it to angles and joints that create something new is mesmerizing. As one turns from page to page, this book is one for the library because it represents timeless work with singular vision and artistry. Since we are talking about a design and architecture book, I will tell you that the book is solid in construction and beautiful to look at when closed, which means it's also a perfect specimen for accessorizing. When you open this book, the experience of turning pages is as much a journey as it is exercise in surprise and delight. Book Look has turned into a really cool segment for me, and it has also received some very positive feedback. I would tell you that I only review design books that I can touch, hold, and feel. I do this because I believe that's how books are meant to be enjoyed. I don't review PDFs because I, I want you to know what the experience was like for me so you can factor that not only into the calculus when deciding if or if not to get a copy for yourself. I spend over an hour paging through, flipping, turning, and reading. And doing it this time and, and gathering Thomas's thoughts it was a joy. It was a lot of fun. As much as it is a mirror, as Kligerman describes it, he envisages things to come. With that, I am also anxiously awaiting the next book that will showcase the work he does from here on out. Between now and then, this book is a keeper. Godspeed, Thomas. You are going to hear from Ben Johnston right after this. 
I am so proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They have been presenting partners of Convo by Design for three years, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the best in the world at what they do. I think Thermosol makes the greatest steam shower generators in the world for a few reasons. They were the first to do it here in the U.S., doing it back in 1958. They operate a factory here in the United States, Round Rock, Texas, to be specific, where they have an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. They test every single steam generator before it leaves the factory. Who else does that? Nobody. I have the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me the idea of luxury has changed in the last couple of years, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory, or it's not luxury. And, and if you want to add steam, you have really only one true option, the best in the business, Thermosol. Mitch Altman, third-generation CEO of this family-owned business, continues to innovate with Smart Shower, a technological marvel, aromatherapy, chromotherapy, and so many options, I, I can't possibly list them all here. And it is easy to size and simple to configure. Check out all available options at thermosol.com. A bathroom isn't truly luxury without steam, and there's really only one option for steam if you want the best, and that's Thermosol. Welcome. Thank well, you. Welcome to West Edge First Edition in Dallas, Texas. Um, the Convo by Design stage is presented by WeScover, and um, model number provided some furnishings. This is like, we've only met recently, but for me, this is really special. Aww. Because love your work. Thank you. So glad that we get a chance to catch up. Love doing it on a stage in front of real life people. Um, not, you know, just for, just to make it easy, I was thinking about bringing in just a bunch of computer screens and then everyone can go sit over there and watch on their phones. Cause that would be, you know what I mean? Are, are you sick of the zoom meetings or are you still doing them? Uh, we're still doing them. They're still necessary. Has it, has it changed the nature of the business now that it is ubiquitous? so that now you can do more, not that you'd ever want to leave Texas, but that you can do more projects elsewhere. What I think is so important in our industry is communication in general, uh, and any tools that allow us to communicate more effectively and actually be able to take advantage of body language and understanding how people's faces are reacting to something that you're showing them is ideal, so I'm, I am, definitely pro Zoom, but I will say to design in that capacity is not great for me. Like I like hands-on, I like doing that, but to actually be able to present something to a client and be able to read their facial expressions and understand if they're liking it or not liking it, that continues to be valid. Backing up a second, when you and I were, were speaking before, I told you what a sucker I am for a good origin story. A good what? Origin story. Yes. And let's back up a second. How did, how did you get to, to be doing what you're doing right now? Great question. Um, you know, it's interesting for me. I, I think I am fascinated by also by origin stories, but I'm also fascinated by the fact that I think that like life, you just kind of have to let it unfold and you have to say yes to certain opportunities. And when you say yes to certain opportunities, it begets more opportunities. And so for me, it was really about thinking as a young boy in Texas that I wanted to be an architect. It was about going and studying as, uh, you know, because that, that was the only option, really. Uh, it was the only thing I was encouraged to do was to be an architect, um, and which I'm thrilled with. I think it was a great decision for me. So my background, I got my undergraduate degree in architecture. I got my master's degree in architecture. Uh, and then I decided that I wanted to be, you know, go out and try my hand at architecture, and that's what I did. My first job out of school was working for a architect named Cesar Pelli, who is a famous Argentinian architect um, based here in the United States, and that was my kind of introduction to the world of large-scale commercial architecture. The process of going to something that large where it was like, like, over a million square feet was kind of our typical 
kind of project scale um, as just a broad category, that made me think, okay, I understand what the large scale is. I'm interested in the small scale now. Like I wanna, I wanna take it all the way back to the small intimate moment of design. And so for me, it was really neat because it was through that experience that I came back to the United States because I was working in their Tokyo office and I came back to the United States and I kind of put out my shingle as a designer not knowing what that would mean. I was open to all possibilities. So I went from um, kind of saying again yes to certain opportunities such as I would get asked to do a host stand for a restaurant. Like design and build me a host stand. I'm like, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And they'd say, well, can you do the banquet? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Can you do the dining tables? Yeah, I could do that. Can you do the bar? Yeah, I can do that. So it was through those experiences that I, then people would see my work in the public sphere and they'd say, hey, I really love what you did at this restaurant. Could you come into my home and help me with that dining table or that banquet? And so I'd say yes to those opportunities. And then they would say, well, you know, if you can do that, can you also do our kitchen and our bathroom and then our living room and then our house and we have an addition and then we have, you know, I just say yes to certain things that it felt right to say yes at the time that we were doing it. Uh, and then we, you know, we got a lot of um, referrals from architects who knew my background as an architect. So they started funneling me more design work that was interior design related work um, that kind of allowed me to go ahead and call myself an interior designer without ever setting out to be one. And so it was again, that's kind of my origin story. It's something I've really enjoyed and it's been a journey. And what's hilarious is that all these years later now, I have an architecture firm as well. And so now we're doing architecture as well and it's been a really neat experience to kind of see it come full circle. Interesting, and I love that. And I'm really curious too. So I, I had a chance to sit with Bunny Williams a couple years ago and she told me something. She's fabulous. She is. She told me something that I found really interesting. She, when she was interning for Parrish Hadley, she learned from Sister Parrish not just what she wanted out of her career, but also what she didn't. She said Sister, Sister Parrish loved and thrived in conflict and chaos. And that's something that she didn't want in her career. So I go to you in your career now, now working in an office of someone like Cesar Pelli, who, he, and he, he passed recently, but the office lives on, the work lives on. And for those not familiar with his, I'm a native Angelino, so his relationship with those in Southern California, so he is responsible for the Pacific Design Center beloved and hated beyond belief. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got this big blue whale. You can see it from the airport when you take off. You can it's, see it from space. <laughs> it's huge. You've got three buildings. You've got red, green, and blue, and it's, it's very, very modern in West Hollywood, nestled amongst, you know, old Spanish, small Spanish homes and, and palm trees, and you know, very, very quaint community, which just sort of begat this, this monster of a building. And because of that, it really did shock the system. I mean, it's the size of a studio. And, and in LA, you're used to studios being there, but the studios at least make some effort to fit in, <laughs> as opposed to this. So I'm curious, what did you learn from that experience, what did you learn that you liked? What did you take away that maybe you wanted less of and so you would structure your own firm differently? That's a great, fascinating question because I don't think I, other than, because I was 24 when I got that opportunity to work for him, um, I think I was probably less aware of what it was that I wanted or didn't want. All I knew though is that large-scale corporate architecture did not, did not satisfy my creative process in the way that I wanted to be satisfied. Um, and I also say, you know, working in another country, especially Japan, working, you know, we were working 80 to 100 hours a week. I mean, no lie, that's what Cesar Pelli's office does. It, it breeds this kind of workaholic um, you know, atmosphere, you've got to give everything to your company. I think that that may have been also what I was reacting against. 
you know, I now probably, by the way, when you your own your you are your own business person, you end up working that 100%. I'm not going to lie, but at least there was a um, I was doing it for myself, you know, as opposed to doing it for in another country for people I was never going to meet and never have a relationship with. So it was a it was a different scale and point of reference. I'm going to challenge that assertion a, a little bit. That, Go ahead. That as a as a sole proprietor or a or a partner within a firm that you have to work 80 or 100 hours because it's all about culture mm -hmm. you have made that choice you are driven we're going to get into that a little bit you are very very driven <laughs> I, I don't think that you have to be nope. to be successful nope. i think that there are designers and architects out there that are very selective in the manner in which they choose when and where to work. And I, I bring it up not just for the sake of, of finding conflict in the conversation, which look, every now and then it's a little fun, but, um, but also because I feel like, especially now, can we say post-pandemic yet? Can we say that? Yeah. We'll, we'll say it. So Let's so, manifest that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Post-pandemic, we've all learned a thing or two about life that maybe we didn't realize three or four years ago. Like, maybe we don't want the same bullshit that we dealt with for a long time. Maybe we're ready to eliminate some of that from, from our daily lives. I think that it's important, and I bring it up, because that's what clients are asking for. Mm -hmm. Clients have learned that they want to live their life differently, and if they want to live their life differently, now you have to think differently as you provide it, that experience to them. Yeah, and I, I think for me, I look at the last few years, well, if we're gonna talk about the pandemic for a moment, it was like I said, right at the beginning of pandemic, like every small business person, they were like, oh my God, our business is going to completely stop. And I had mouths to feed, you know, like I had a lot of, even at the time, I had a good sized office and I was not interested in laying anyone off. So we said any opportunities that were gonna come in the door, we were gonna take. Cause we also didn't know how long the sun was going to shine and the hay was going to be able to be harvested. And so we said yes to those things. And then, you know, like everyone in our industry, three weeks, four weeks go by and then the phone started ringing and then it didn't, never stopped ringing. And I think everyone kept on saying, okay, well, supply chain is going to slow our entire industry down. This is going to be, you know, and it, it has done all those things. It's made us very difficult to do business uh, sometimes. But I kept on saying, okay, well, each opportunity that came in the door, I kept on thinking, okay, looking at the number of, you know, balance of projects that we have. I want to make sure that we have some projects that sustain us for several years. And sure enough, that happened. And then even more work came in. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I don't know, I don't know how to manage all that. Now I will say this, I, I work in a, an incredible capacity, but I also don't expect anyone on my team to work as hard as I do, because it is very important for me that I retain the, the talent that I have managed to feel blessed to work with every day. And if I work them to the bone, they're gonna leave. So the truth is, is that it's really important. They all work a very nice 40 hours a week, and I work twice that. <laughs> a nice 80 hours a week. Yes. <laughs> no, I get that. It happens. Well, and I want to say one other thing, Josh. I can only sustain this. I made a kind of a mental decision when this whole thing started picking up. I was like, you know what? I can do this, and I can do this like a marathon. Like, you plan for it. You're like, okay, I can do this for the next two years, and I can crank this out. But I have already said, next year, I am scaling way back. Not necessarily in terms of um, the number of projects, but just the number of hours that I am working every week. So it's so funny. As I look out, which I occasionally love to do, I just looked, and I'm seeing all the nodding. And, in, and you, know, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing you nodding, and inside you're going, there's no way. It's not going to happen. There's no way. Because as someone who trains for a marathon, I've trained for a marathon. You train for a marathon, you get up to that certain speed and yeah. that cadence. It is a conscious choice, and I feel like you in particular are somebody, you love this. 
I, I, I'll tell you what it actually is my favorite part. We had a baby shower for one of the ladies in my office um, who's so sweet. She, she will be the first official kind of grandbaby born into our office. And like I, it was on Friday night and we toasted her and I mean tears like welling up in my eyes. I sat there and thought, this is why I do this. Like to be able to provide for other people and to provide a kind of a lifestyle for them and a, the opportunity for growth and to buy their first houses and to get their first cars and to, you know, have their first child is really exciting for me. So the thing that I love most about our job is actually that aspect is being a provider. But do you also miss, and by the way, I've got some of your, of your work shown and I want to talk about it a little bit. And, and here's what I, let me just preface this by saying, yes, I host a podcast. Yes, podcasts are audio. So if you are listening to this at a later date, because we will be publishing all of these as episodes, and when you listen to this, go back to the show notes, there will be a link for you, and you can click in and follow the presentation along, and you can actually see what we're talking about. There you go, that's my disclaimer. Perfect, I, I love it. That in. When was the last time you designed for somebody who just bought their first house? I don't know about first house, but you know, it was funny when Sherry was speaking with you earlier, the thing that I, I love is actually clients who have done this a few times before. Um, and that's something that Sherry had expressed. Um, and of course I was just speaking about Sherry Hayslip who was on, on the stage earlier. You know, when you do have a client who has worked through design before, they have a basis of knowledge and understanding about the way that the process works. And sometimes that's to your advantage and sometimes it could be to your disadvantage. And the way it's to your advantage is they kind of understand the cadence of what to expect. If they've had a really negative experience with a previous kind of design experience, then I try, I have to retrain them and I have to tell them, you know, just because you had that experience before doesn't mean that's the way I run my business or what you should expect from X, Y, and Z. So um, I will say that is akin to saying that I have worked with a lot of clients who maybe are in new phases of their life for different kinds of homes, but not. I, I haven't probably worked with an, a full-on new home buyer in probably, I'd say, at least 10 years. And yet what's really interesting is post-pandemic, again, we're saying that. When, when I look at your work, and I, and I look at a space, the, the image on the right that I'm, I'm referring to, is you, you've got a space, and I'm, I'm not even talking about the furnishings. I'm just looking at where things are, <laughs> how they were placed, how it was organized, because you've got a space here that is a luxurious salon, but it's also a home office. It doesn't look like a home office. It doesn't look like a home office at all, as a matter of fact, <laughs> when you think about the traditional home office. You, you can put a computer screen there, you can have a computer there, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't destroy the work. How has that changed the manner in which you think about the craft that you practice? I would say, well, I, every, every single project, every single client, it's something different, and I've learned something different on every single project. I can honestly say I have been doing this now for 20 years and there has not been a single day that I have not learned something profoundly new. And every single project presents me something new um, that I am like, wow, you never get too old to learn a valuable lesson. Um, so I would say in terms of the home office, in terms of, of a study, a library. It's hilarious because we just did, um, we've, we've been trying to up our YouTube game and we, I posted a video of a, of a library space and someone was like, where's all the books? And I was like, well, there, there are books in there, but I was like, keep in mind in today's home, home office or library, people are reading on a Kindle. People are not collecting books with the incredible fervor that they used to. Um, so I think a library is going to look different. I think an office is going to look different. I think the way people um, spend times in their home is going to look different. Um, so I would say with that space in particular, the layout of it was really meant to host a different number of opportunities. It was about 
I want a chair for reading. I want a chair for socializing or a sofa for socializing. I want a desk area to sit and get on my laptop because again, a lot of people do a lot of reading online or looking at the news. So for me, it was really about doing all of those things. So I, I believe, and I've said this, I, I have a tendency, I don't know if it's a bad habit or if it's just something that I do, but I, I, I tend to reference many of the same stories over and over again because they're always germane to the conversation. And one of it's which, not a bad thing. One of which is that years ago when I started the, the podcast, I would ask designers and architects what their favorite style is. And it doesn't matter what your favorite style is. It matters what your client thinks. But the reason it's important to me now is because I learned over time that there are through lines to, to creatives work. Like you can look at a fine artist and you can have two totally different paintings, but if you pay attention to it, you'll see some through lines that are representative mm -hmm. one of the other. And I've, I've found that to be very true for, for highly successful, well-decorated designers and architects. And as I look at this next image, you space plan like an architect. And 100%. when I look at your work, I see that reminiscent, no matter what space I'm looking at, it's all, and, and it's not matchy-matchy, but everything has like, you don't wonder where the flow <laughs> goes. You don't wonder, there's no questions. It's like, well, which way do I go? It's spelled out for you, but it's not overt. I, I do feel like houses tell you what they want, I firmly believe that it's, there's very few times that I'm just like, I don't know what this house is telling me. Most of the time I say, okay, as an architect, I understand. I understand where the traffic flow is supposed to be. I understand what the, the function of the room is supposed to be. And so for me, I feel like, okay, it's really obvious uh, how there are a few different ways that this needs to go. That being said, there's not a single project that we don't present to ourselves, explore to ourselves, and then to our client and present to our client at least five options for every room. It's our rule. I show them how the room could be laid out five different ways every single time. And even if, the only time I may not do that, if it's like a really small bedroom and they said, well, I just want a king size bed and, and two nightstands, well, there's not many arrangements you can come up with that, but I'll at least even try showing them a king size bed on a different wall than what was expected. That being said, we do plan out, before we even start talking about style, we wanna think about how the room is gonna function. So we do lay it out in a functional arrangement of furniture. And do you feel like that is, I don't wanna say more important, because I don't think it's more important now, but I think as af after the last few years where you know the slash has kind of taken over, it's the living room slash yoga studio slash <laughs> office slash library slash daycare. Uh, yeah, slash where, everything. Slash yeah. everything. Where, the everything bagel. And, and everything is so multifunctional. Right. That it has, has that been more recognized now from your clients or has that always been appreciated? You know, because I asked the question in all seriousness because, and I've come to terms with this over the years that clients don't always appreciate what their designers and architects do for them. But with something like that, have you seen an appreciation for that grow? I, I at least know that when the clients, you know, I always, I always say, and I used to, I used to teach design as well, and I was always, I'd always say, you've got, when I was teaching design and then when I'm mentoring the younger team members, I always say, you've got to show them what you spent the hours doing. And I mean that because you can send a bill to a client for the time that you've spent on their project and you may just show them one option. They're like, I don't understand. Like, what were you doing for the past, you know, X number of weeks that you're just showing me one option? I always try to show them, I always lead and I say, we've explored this. We think this is your best option. But I wanna show you what other things we explored because I think no's are just as powerful as yeses. And I think that if they see something that doesn't resonate with them, um, they either A, it confirms that your recommendation is the right one, um, but it also means that they know that all those hours that you spent working on their project, they're like, I got good value for my, my investment in your services. So that's part of the psychological reason, but it's also part of the, um, just the way of doing business that I believe in. Internally, how do you circumnavigate the conundrum between your architect side and your designer side when, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm going to play act the conversation that I see going on in your head. I well, like the, to see this. The client wants to see value. The architect side is like, well, yeah, I can totally see that. You didn't show them any value. You just showed them <laughs> a couple of options. And the designer said, yes, but it takes me so long to do that. I've got to specify and I've got to research and I've got to look for new partners. And this one didn't come in that size. And the one that they originally chosen was discontinued. So I can't use that one. But I love this vendor. And I'm, am I close? You're, you're close. But I will say that actually the part of the, the sausage being made that we do not show our clients is the, I mean, so when we, we typically present to clients, um, we will we'll show after they've selected their floor plan and we kind of have an understanding about how they want to use the space. We'll go through a process of curating all the furniture for, for the interior. So what I do is we typically, again, show our concept. We're really excited about, and this is just what we do. Um, we show our concept, we, we illustrate to them, and then we have a folder typically next to us that is literally like all the dining chairs that we looked at, all the sofas that we looked at, all the coffee tables that we looked at. And what that means is, is that for us, as it says, you know, we've already done all of this. And if you don't like something that we're presenting you, then I have some other options that I can show you. Maybe that will resonate with you a little bit more. But we think that this is the best combination of art, furniture, fabrics, materials, architectural and otherwise. Um, and it's, we're representing it together in one cohesive package. That being said, and it's interesting because you, I'm genuinely surprised by the amount of work that you do literally on paper ahead of that, right? And what I'm really curious about too now is how do you, how do you navigate that in a world where, you know, show of hands, is anyone here sick of hearing supply chain? The word supply chain, if we never said supply chain, it's like pandemic. If we never said COVID again, we'd be absolutely fine, right? Yeah. I don't want to know about the supply chain, but you have to. And the reason why you have to, yes, as a client, but also as a designer, because the hits keep coming. You know, most people don't even realize it's this, it's this bliss that comes from not knowing what's happening around us that, you know, this week alone, we averted an absolute disaster. You are listening to my conversation called Perspectives, one-on-one with Benjamin Johnston, live from the West Edge Design Fair. We'll be right back. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years, two plus years now? You know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. Could you imagine if rail transit went down due to a strike? All of the things that you have at a port on either coast, getting to Dallas or Houston or anywhere in the center of the, I mean. So true. Well, not only that, I mean, building materials and, you know, the primary way that building materials are circulated around our country is by rail. Um, So it's interesting you should say that. I mean, for me, I think part of the big challenge for us, and I know it has been for many of my colleagues, has just been that um, they don't realize that 
before we typically have actually even presented to them, we've had to run through diagnostics on, can we even get the product in time um, to meet their expectations? Um, can we, you know, who is gonna be making this furniture or making this textile? But I will also tell you, the coolest part for me is something I go back to that I try to romance with my clients, and that is that materials and products come from all over the world, and they are the product of millions of hands and millions of people. And if you think about what I think luxury is, and I think about how beautiful we are as a culture for sustaining some of the most ancient arts that we have, rug making, with my friends Mark Phillips in the back, um, this is one of like the oldest art forms. And the truth is, is that we're still practicing it today. How freaking cool is that? I mean, I, I try to really also weave some romance about the fact that, yes, your rug is three months late, but there was a monsoon. And the monsoon literally has derailed the weavers. They could not get to the, their, their, the factory to actually weave your rug. And they're like, whoa. Like, I love also when manufacturers give us tools to show the process of what it takes to actually make these things. So I'll give a great example. So we've gotten factory photos from the other side of the world where you see the whole group of weavers all working next to each other. And they're literally like weaving knot by knot your rug. I mean, and that is just the coolest thing ever. And I show clients, like I'll forward that to the clients and be like, look, your rug is on the loom. How cool is this? And they're like, wow. We didn't realize that that was actually made by human hands because I think today in what I call Amazonia Prime, the world of Amazon, they think this stuff all comes off of a conveyor belt and they just don't realize that it is all actually the product of human hands. It's just like, it's magic to them. So if you can celebrate that, I think it does get clients to be a little bit more forgiving when they understand that it's, it is a product made by hand, they're like, oh, I wasn't just the factory of a, of a big machine that was just cranking out this rug. And you know who I give a lot of credit to for this new way of thinking? And it's funny to hear myself say this is crazy because I spent, you know, I've been doing the podcast for 10 years. And in many of those years, I cannot tell you how many events where there were panel conversations about, well, let's talk about millennials. What do millennials want? What do millennials buy? How do we separate millennials from their money? Are millennials making any money? They live in their parents' basement. How can they be making any money? And there was this, you, you know what I'm talking about. There was this thing with millennials. It was just crazy because it was a generation gap where the, the design industry, they kind of millennials as a generation kind of rebuffed the industry because they didn't want designers like their parents had or grandparents had. It was a different, they didn't want to live the same way. It was a, it was a culture shift. It was an ideological change in the manner in which that they wanted to live. And because of that, what people didn't understand is, yeah, they were living in their parents' basement. Sure, it, was a, it sounded like a total negative. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in my parents' basement, but at the same time, their shopping habits changed. It wasn't that they didn't have money. It said if they didn't want to work someplace, they would just leave. Yeah. It, it meant more to them to have a life. That life included surrounding themselves, and still does, includes surrounding themselves with things and objects that make them happy. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a pair of sneakers, maybe it's a watch, maybe it's a bureau, maybe it's a car. Maybe it's furniture. Maybe, well, yeah, yeah, and, and because of that, you go back to the rug analogy. Well, they, will, they took this high-low concept, this curated, what was curated, which was eclectic, which was high-low, whatever you want to call it, but it was this idea that you can bend and blend and mix and get a look that is completely unique, which, by the way, is the superpower of what a designer does. But not everything has to come out of the pages of AD. Mm -hmm. Not everything has to, has to come from Europe. You can find something that you absolutely love. And when you talk about a rug like that, where, gosh, that, that fits the model. It does. But I also say on that note is, like, I'm passionate about... I'm passionate about 
obviously craft-made product by artisans across the world, but I'm also, like it's been really fun for me, I'm working on a fabric line with S. Harris, which is a brand of uh, luxury textiles for, uh, that are part of the Fabricut family of brands based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, the thing I was just gonna say is that when you get to look at where the mills are located in the world for textiles, it's all over the world. I mean, most of my fabrics are coming from Turkey, from, um, from Italy, Turkey, uh, India, and uh, actually some made here in America. And on that note, it's kind of cool because you look at the yarns are made here, the textiles are woven here, the fabrics are finished here, they're imported over here, they're sold to this person over here. I mean, it is incredibly complex. And then on the other scale, I'm doing this incredible line with Chattuck Furniture that I am so excited about. And this is American-made manufactured pieces that I get to see, I get to go to the factory and meet all of these incredible woodworkers and upholsters that are just creating these really beautiful, I think, one-of-a-kind pieces. So I'm really excited about supporting the American craftsmen at the same time. So I'm, I'm just so passionate about crafts not leaving our world. And if we don't support craftsmen around the world, they will go away. It's not being passed on to the younger generation. So it's, it's exciting for me. And I love that you're doing that through brand partnerships and collaborations. So take me through the process of ideation to fulfillment of a partnership. Sure. Who, who does it go through within your office? How does it how does it become? What is the vetting process? What is the manufacturer vetting process? What is the partner process? How do you how do you put that together? I would say that's a fascinating question and I will know from t speaking with other colleagues of mine who have different product lines, um, I would say that it's different for everyone, but for me, I did all the designs myself. Um, and created all of them, you know, drew them out, sketched them out, measured them out, had lots of conversations with the craftsmen on all levels from the weaving ones for the fabrics and the textiles to also with the furniture line with Chattuck Furniture. So it's really, um, it's very much something close to my heart. Uh, I do know that there are many designers who have obviously teams that where they work with to kind of realize this, but for me it was really uh, the part of the process that I've been probably the most fascinated by, mainly because, if you'll remember my origin story, I started really by designing furniture for restaurants, and that's how it kind of turned into what my, my business has been. So it's been fun for me to work hand in hand with craftsmen who are building things that in many cases, I used to have to build myself. So I have an intimate understanding about how these things go together. Um, and so that's been really fun for me. So how many partnerships, how many collaborations? I have currently, um, I have, my first one was actually with Madison Lily Rugs, and I did um, a collection of rugs that was my 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 pandemic collection it was called flight it's called flight it's still available um that's genius by the way yeah i, love it. I, I really I, it was inspired by bird feathers and the notion was i was just like everybody wants to leave and they want to go to someplace exotic and i wanted to create rugs that had this exotic um tapestry inspired uh design so I, it was done out of beautiful silk and wool and hand-knotted, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. And then I have two more rugs lines coming out with them this fall. Uh, one's called Palazzo, and another one's called Geometrica. And they're more geometric-inspired designs. And then I have the uh, furniture collection with Chattuck that I'm, again, debuts this October. And then the fabric collection, which we're doing us with S. Harris, that we're doing a soft launch this fall, but it will roll out more robustly in the spring. I just want to back up one second to the fabric and textiles part of this. Because it seems, you know, to me it seems like it would be so overwhelming. A sofa is a sofa, and you, but you can, you can put it in a different configurations, you can use it in so many ways. A rug is a rug, but you can configure it. And, but, but textiles and fabrics, gosh, you could do anything with it. And I'm imagining the designer side of you is having that, that wrestling match with the architect side again. Like, well, will this work for that? Or will this work in that application? Or right. I think the, the neat thing is, as I look at fabrics in particular and, and the rugs as inspiration, like there is, 
a sofa is a functional thing and it can be very inspirational, but as a functional item, it does need to perform and look a certain way with, with some guardrails on that to actually be comfortable and usable. Um, fabrics and textiles and rugs, um, you can, they're really art in a way, and you can get away with a lot more um, imagination and creativity on those than you can on pieces that people are gonna use every day. Uh, so it's, it's been fun. I, now, again, I love a box because I like to think inside that box and outside that box. So I love challenging that notion as much as I can with furniture, but I will say that the fabrics and, uh, and the rugs are a lot more um, creative in that regard. So every year at West Edge, this is the first iteration here in Texas, but every year we do it in Santa Monica, well, every year. Last one was 2019. But prior to that, every year was in Santa Monica. And one of the first programs I, I present on trade day is always something brand related for the trade because of the emails I get, that is always the number one question mm. is, like, what can I do to, how, how do I brand my company? How do I expand my, how do I, I, I've gotten questions before, like, how do I fire my low-end clients so that, and replace <laughs> them with high-end clients? Like, well, that's a great question. Who doesn't want to know that? But the idea is the same. And so when you mentioned upping your YouTube game, I, I'm, I'm curious, that is a completely different side of the business. And I will also say this. For sure. Over the years, pre-pandemic, I would have these, after every one of my interviews, I generally sit down with the creative and I say, you know, tell me something. How many projects are you working on? What's the budgets you're working with? Just not for the, not for the uh, podcast, not for, for publication, but just so that I understand the business a little bit better. So I've watched a lot of things change and trends happen. And for you, 80 hours a week is 100% of the time that you've allocated to do your job. For another designer, 40 hours a week may be 100% of the time that they've allocated. So in 2019, the average amount of time that designers were using to work on their business was 120% of their allocated time. I believe that. They were spending, and now it's, it's quantum leaps ahead of that because there are all these things that designers have to do now that you didn't have to do before. Specifying became far more challenging. Um, social media is the bane of everyone's existence. You feel like you have to do it, but you really don't like TikTok. Do I have to be on TikTok? <laughs> well, we got to be on TikTok now because that's where, you know, we just have to. So it's Instagram. We definitely do Instagram. Pinterest, do we have to? Well, we might as well because we've always been doing it. <laughs> so we got to do it. MySpace, I think we can let our MySpace go at this point. I think, I think MySpace may be a thing of the, uh, we, you know, Justin Timberlake may relaunch. You never know. You never you know. You never know. You never know. It could be Vine. It could be any <laughs> number of other things. But, you know, for now, TikTok it seems to be the question. You know, do we do it? Do we not do it? And then you figure, well, you're creating the content, you might as well park it there too. LinkedIn, are we using LinkedIn? Are we not using LinkedIn? Well, it, for the business, we probably should. How do you, you talk about raising your YouTube game, how do you work that into the roles and responsibilities of the firm without completely losing control of time? Because that's a time suck like nothing yeah, else. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel fortunate just because we do collaborate with some pretty fabulous people. Uh, I have a wonderful publicist. Uh, she introduced us to a wonderful videographer. Um, and what we've started doing is, you know, when we go to shoot the project, um, we will take the opportunity while we're shooting the project, while the, all the styling is still there and everything's looking fabulous, we'll have the videographer come in. Typically, it's not the day of the shoot because of the day of the shoot's chaos, but we'll have them come in the day after the shoot. And, um, and we just, I probably spend, like in a house, I might spend the first two, three hours in the house with the videographer and just talking about my favorite things. And the, our publicist, Megan, will literally like write down any single thing that I mention, and then they go back and they capture B-roll, and they're typically in the house for the rest of the day. Um, making sure all the B-roll is captured and, and then the videographer edits all of it together. It's not a huge time suck on my part to do that aspect of the business. Um, but I imagine if I was 
you know, bootstrapping this, I wouldn't have the videographer and I wouldn't have the publicist to help. So I know that I would be probably spending more time on that aspect of the social media. The reason though, I wanted to go back to something you were saying, you know, I get asked a lot on social media, what's the best use of my time? You know, I have only so many resources to spend um, on social media in general, where should I go? And so I often respond, it just depends on where your audience is. Um, it so happens that my audience is largely on Instagram. Uh, so it just the demographic and the users are there. Um, I don't have a, a millennial, like a true millennial client or one that's younger that's going to be expecting to see me on TikTok. <laughs> So I don't feel the pressure to invest in TikTok as a, as a platform. I would like to say I'm finally old enough and have a clientele base that's older that I will never have to do that. But you never know. I have been proven wrong more times than I can say. And so I'm, um, we'll just have to see how the platform unfolds. So the last area I want to go, and the timing is perfect because this image came up. Now, it's funny because not many people can have a shower where you could move a sofa into the shower or have have a garden in the shower or you know actually have you put a home office in a shower yet because you know with, with that one you you probably could if you yeah. really wanted to but what i love about it is are those transoms at the top those are transoms at the top so that is a steam shower it's a I, what's really funny about the story that you should say i did this project and then i had to do the project for the new homeowners after this and this particular project did not have a steam shower, but it's such a huge wet room area that they had to not just do one steam shower, they had to do two steam units just to even fill up the two space. Two generators for that. Two generators for this. Wow, okay. But the, what's hilarious is that it was never, again, it was never meant to be a steam shower. They were just determined to do it. I personally would not want to stand in a shower and bathe myself in a shower this large because I feel like you'd get cold. It's like showering at the gym. Um, and I have no interest in doing that. But the, the truth is, is like this was a special request from the, the original homeowner. And I will tell you for every person who walked in and thought it was amazing, in my brain, I was saying, I would be freezing cold in the shower. So. It's amazing, it did win um, a couple of design, this particular bathroom won several design awards. I think it's a, a jaw-dropping image, but I don't necessarily think it's the most functional. So I love that you say that, because I, I, not only do I appreciate the honesty, but I, I get it. And it's funny too, because it just, it does, something doesn't have to be that big. There's something too about, it's. You know what it is for me? It's kind of like um, going to the Detroit Auto Show, right? And you see the new Lambo, or you see what, what you know, a GT, or you see something. It's like, well, nobody's going to be driving the concept <laughs> cars. You're not going to see right. them on the freeway. But the reason they're there is for the, for the purpose of inspiring others. This is incredibly inspirational. It's incredibly aspirational. And... I'm glad it's there because someone can now take that idea and say, well, you know what? We love this. We're going to make half wet, half dry, same footprint, but we're going to, we're going to make two. And if you 100%. did that, it would, it would totally change the, the dynamic of the space and add something to completely different. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, honestly, it was inspired by a Turkish bath. Um, because that's kind of the, the notion of the Turkish bath. We just did it at that, at that particular scale. And it was interesting because a Turkish bath is going to be steamy, right? But it wasn't, the scale of the room isn't really, it was supposed to be inspired by, but not actually supposed to be a steam bath until the new homeowners came in and decided they had to have it steamy. So um, it's kind of funny. It is inspirational though. And I will tell you, because of this project, I've had, so many phone calls and I got new projects based off of this bathroom because people were like, we want that bathroom. And I'm like, are you sure you want that bathroom? Like, okay, we can do it, but like, think this through. And I live in Houston, so for me, I say, if you want to steam, just walk outside. Like, that's all you need. You don't need a steam shower for that. Well, I, I love that. And, and also, I, I love your work. Thank you. I love what you do. Thank you. Last question I have for you is kind of a weird one, but I always like to throw those in. 
So having done what you're doing now for as long as you've done it and starting as an architect, choosing design, if you had to go back to yourself 20 years ago as, you left, as you're leaving Cesar Pelli, what would you have told yourself that now you wish you would have known? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I, think, I think I probably would have encouraged myself to get, get things together a little bit faster than I did. Like, I did not really start in earnest an interiors practice or, you know, probably until I would say, I'm going to say 12 years ago, I didn't really start to say I'm exclusively focusing on residential design or interior design until about 12 years ago. And then I, my other thing I would have said is don't turn your back on architecture because now I have a full architecture practice. It's two years old. We already have 25 projects. It's I'm really, really happy about that. But if I had just done that sooner and not put it off for so long, I think I would have. Um, I wouldn't be at this time in my life working 80 hours a week. <laughs> and the, and the second last question I have for you is because you brought it up and it was something that I think is really important and it it it, it speaks to me is um, in a in a world of no, the power of yes. But it's more than that. It's a conscious choice that you have to force yourself to do. How do you find, especially working as much as you do and, and the, the confinements of, of a business, and sometimes you just, you can't do everything, but that power of yes, how do you self-edit? How do you edit yourself? How do you, how do you push yourself to continue saying yes? Because it is important. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, so much of it is instinct. I think at a certain a certain level, I in my office I always teach. I, I tell I tell any of my team members I'm not here to teach you style. I'm here to teach you a thought process and a and a critical thinking skills necessary for you to advance projects on your own. And I try very hard to lead by asking questions as opposed to giving them answers. So I just constantly sit there and say, okay, well, I think it's a really interesting choice. What do you think is going to be the result of this choice? And I just keep asking them, asking them, asking them questions, and then eventually they'll come up with the answer that I myself would have come up with. So part of, I'm, it's a roundabout way of answering to say, I have had an instinct on, on I have in, my own instincts about design, just as any other designer would have instincts about what they are creating in this world. I do try to just really listen to that and not over, overcomplicate it and by bogging it down with style. I don't know. I think I, I would say that you have got to just really listen to your inner voice and hone that voice and hear it clearly in your head. And that's what I try to do again for my team members is I want them to be able to hear my voice whether I'm standing there or not. Well, thank you for saying yes to doing this because I really appreciate it. This was amazing. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Megan and Troy at West Edge for making this happen. Thank you, WeScover and Model Number for your participation in sponsoring the stage. These chairs, that's so, it's incredibly comfortable. I mean, this is amazing. Um, if you love the conversation, and hopefully you do, go check out the podcast. It'll be up in a few weeks, three Six. It'll get up. When and you've gotten some sleep. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, this is the last one of the show. So thank you for closing it out with style. Um, I love it. I love what you do. You're thank amazing. You. Likewise. Um, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next year. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic a history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly 
the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. Thank you, Ben. Amazing. Thank you, West Edge Design Fair, for allowing me once again to take over the stage and present panels and conversations like these. I view it as a gift, a chance to challenge both myself and the design community with ideas and programming that is different, inspiring, and thought-provoking. Thank you to Convo by Design partners and sponsors. First of all, Thermosol, love working with you. What is it? Almost three years now. York Wall Coverings, Franz Wigner, Moya Living, and Article Furniture for your continued support and partnership. I would ask that if you enjoy listening to the show, you support these companies by giving them a chance to earn your design business. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing. Thank you for your emails and guest submissions. I love them, and please keep them coming. You are the reason I produce Convo by Design. Designers, architects, set decorators, showroom managers, publicists, artists, makers. You make this world a better place. Remember why you do what you do. Be well. And until next week, take today first. Mm